live and buy, die by technology. What if the stories that we tell ourselves um, are off? What if, um, what if we need others a lot more than we think we do or would dare to admit? And when I say others, I mean people like you and me who fail one another. What if we still need each other more than we'd hoped? What if it's true that not... Uh, that, that your own effort doesn't, or the results of your own efforts don't completely depend upon you? Or what if it's true that the confidence that you bring to a situation is uh, mistaken? Or the devaluing of your gifts is misguided? What if you overestimate or underestimate your contributions in the kingdom? What if when you're thinking about your gifts, what if the comparisons, you know those ones we do every day, whether it's with a swipe or a click or a side-eyed glance or a stare, what if those comparisons didn't either bring you feeling judgmental or feeling judged, but what if they brought unity? What if our jealousy turn to joy? What if we, and the way we think about measuring our lives and measuring up is its own problem? I did some thinking about measuring. Do you know what the Scoville measures? The Scoville measures the amount of, I think it's called capsaicin in chilies. And, um, a pimento cheese, a pe- not pimento, a pimento in pimento cheese is 100 to 500. Okay? A cayenne pepper is 30,000 to 50,000. The Carolina Reaper, I do not want this, is a million. And pepper spray is 5 million, but don't eat that. Did you know that we used to measure in moments, not precious moments, moments? Do you know what a moment is? In medieval times, it was about a minute and a half. So just a moment actually is a timestamp. But the most important one I read was about the smoot. You can actually measure things in smoots and have them translated via Google. A smoot is named after a guy named Smoot, who was last name Smoot, who was at MIT, and they were wondering how far or how many smoots it would take to get from the bridge across the bridge from Cambridge to Boston. And it's 376 and one-half smoots and an ear. He's 5'7". And so they just put him back, laid him back over and over and over again. And so you can literally go to Google right now. Well, don't do it right now, but you can. Uh, and, and see how many miles, or how many smoots are in a mile. Oh, 364.4 and an ear. That's right. So Google offers that option to you as well. Our passage today is about a form of measuring and making sure we have the right measures for the right things. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. I think this verse is fascinating. I really, really enjoy this verse because it's about a kind of measuring, a measuring of the grace that's been given him. He's marking that. For the grace I've been given because of this, or by the grace that I've been given, 
Don't think about the amount of grace here. That's not what he's talking about. It's that the grace uh, in his particular calling. His, he's measuring his own calling, which is that of an apostle. Again, it's not the magnitude of grace he's received, but the type of grace. For by the grace given to me, then he asks everyone in the entire church to measure themselves. I say to everyone among you, think of each other according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So he's calling every Christian in Rome to measure, to measure themselves, and not just Rome because it was a circular letter, so it was expected to go all the Christians of his day and age to do some thoughtful measuring. But what I love about this is that he says next is a pastorally genius move because he goes, I want you to do some measuring, but I want you to measure in light of everyone's temptation to measure in a way that makes yourself look better than others. Do not think of yourselves more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment or sobriety a kind of measured, stayed, in-the-game thoughtfulness. I read a story about a kid who was three feet tall, and he, was, he came to his mom and says, Mom, I am six feet tall. And she was like, tell me more about this. And he said, Mama, I'm six feet tall. He goes, I, I don't know. He goes, I used the measuring. I measured. I got the ruler, and I measured it, and I'm six feet tall. She goes, honey, I, I think we need, you need to try that again. Or yeah, I don't think you're six feet tall. I mean, you're a big boy. He starts crying and wailing and saying, I am six feet tall. I will show you. And he goes to her, and he shows where he had measured himself on the ground. And he got his six-inch ruler out, and he said, look, six rulers, six feet tall his six-inch ruler out. He just measured with the wrong thing. He just measured in a way that made him look a lot taller and bigger than he thought. So God wants us to use a scale and realize that when we do, we do typically over-evaluate, seem taller than we are. We measure up, if you will, because we're not worried about measuring up. Self-measuring is harder than you think, just so you know. Time magazine asked Americans... Are you in the top 1% of earners? 19% of Americans are in the top 1% of earners. Americans score 25th in the world in math. And when asked, are you really good in math? The majority says, the vast majority says, yes. We are, in fact, number one in the world of thinking that we're really good at math. But we're not anywhere near number one at math. AAA surveyed in 2017, 83% of American drivers consider themselves safer than the other drivers on the road. 99.8% of 16 to 18 year olds think they're safer than everybody else along the road. Can we say frontal lobe development issues? <laughs> Not to pick on y'all, 16 to 18 year olds. Because it is also true, a well-known fact that over 80% of preachers believe they're better than average preachers. That makes 30% of us dead wrong. <laughs> These are all fun, funny little things, but it is serious business to overestimate yourself. Dr. Cornell West, Reverend Dr. Cornell West, says humility comes in two ways. One, in a capacity of self-criticism. 
and the other allowing others to shine, affirming others, actually seeing gifts as they are and celebrating them. So the sobriety and, and, and celebration are kind of known deeply, and he's, he's, he's derived that from Scripture themselves, maybe even this passage. So a sobriety of judgment, a self-criticism, doesn't come naturally. And it doesn't come with you on your own thinking about yourself. It just doesn't. It comes via a friend. The faithful wounds of a friend. Self-criticism is actually allowing and dignifying of another person's voice into your life. A faithful, loving person's voice into your life. And so it begs the question, and it's haunted the question for me all week. Whose voice are you not listening to in your life? One that is healthy and good for you, obviously. There's plenty of voices we don't need to listen to. But the one you cannot hear, even though they're desperately trying to speak to you in love and kindness. I'm not saying they're doing it perfectly. I'm not saying that at all. But whose voice or what voices or messengers are being repeated over and over to you that we simply ignore or dodge or pacify? Or do a few things to appease, but don't give the proper way. I spend my days either talking or preparing to talk. And friends, this is not an easy thing for me. And particularly, and this is confession as much preaching, I cannot number for you how many times my wife is okay, sweet boy. <laughs> How many times my wife wife has pointed something out to me, in me, that I just have not given the weight it deserved? How often I have lacked sobriety and judgment in light of her words, her advice, her counsel, and her love. It's to my shame and to both of our pains. And it's somehow easier to do when someone is so close to you just not to listen. It is the height of folly because this is the one who loves me the most. It's the height of folly because we're not listening to those who are calling us to a measurement, not not to shame, but to love. So I beg you, even now, even as I beg myself, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think not to be able to listen to somebody else tell you about the sobriety of judgment you should have about yourself. Receive that and give those in love. Have the the hard and honest conversations with each other. And friends, for those of you who are trying to be like my wife has been so faithful in helping someone see their folly, my prayer for you is that you'll have the courage to continue. But to continue without any of your own arrogance or resentment or judgment. Because the hardest thing about staying humble is when you're actually right. When you actually are right about something. And we don't want you to lose your own proper measurements that you also may be given the grace of not thinking too highly of yourself either. Because arrogance is always the greatest temptation when you're on to something. And yet this passage isn't just about the humility or the, the sobriety of your judgment. There is a real sense of celebration here. And yet, this over-evaluation does seem to dominate the text. There's also this sense of where you could under-evaluate 
uh, that, that we, we don't need just to have foolish, we couldn't, we're not only tempted to have foolish pride, but also like a foolish apprehension to use our gifts. This is what he's calling us out to do. So that with each, according to the measure of faith that God has assigned us, that we would live that out. And the measure here, again, is not the amount, but the, to, to measure, to assess, to understand, to get the metrics on, um, on what our giftedness is in the world. And that God's assigned that to us. And so in accordance, in light of those things, how will you move forward? And the, the good news of this, or many parts, are, there's lots of good news in this, but one of the great realities of this is that our Father in heaven has gifted us with a measure of faith that is meant to jump off the pages of our lives. That there's like real stuff there. We've been given gifts, gifts touched by the very hand of the living God for good works. A real giftedness that really matters in the world. This means that every single one of us, every single one of us is gifted for the kingdom of God. All who have called upon the name of the Lord are also now gifted to live in this kingdom. There are no bench players. There are no JV squads. Everybody's on the team and everybody's in the game. And we're to look at ourselves, our own mirrors, and around to one another. And to celebrate these gifts. I know that some of you think your gifts are more minuscule or more minuscule or maybe seem irrelevant. Do not believe that. That is a lie from the pits of hell. It's not true. I promise you, you have been given something. Literally a gift from God. For you to honor God and for the good of your neighbor. This is a high and beautiful calling. That's what verses six, are all, six through eight are all about. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given us, let us use them. If prophecy, proportion to your faith. If service, serve. Teaching, teach. Exhort, ex, uh, the one who exhorts, exhortation. The one who contributes, generosity. The one who leads, with zeal. The one who does mercy, with cheerfulness. There's all sorts of lists like this in scripture, or several anyway, and they're not meant to be a comprehensive list so that you can kind of create a chart to figure out which one you fit in. It's, it's just throwing out a bunch of stuff out there to, to assure you that everybody's gifted in some way. Now, it's cool when some of your gifts come up like this, and those are real gifts, real people, I'm not trying to take that away, but, but all three of the, or four of the times that these lists are in scripture, they're all different than one another. Because the point here isn't just to create the list, and figure out which one you are. And if you're not on there, well, you know, you're out of luck. That's not the point. The point is that you are deeply and profoundly gifted by the hand of God. And both natural and then spiritual gifts that God wants to use in the world. Reverend Claude Alexander, who's a pastor in Charlotte, says, There are questions that beg to be answered in the kingdom. There are dilemmas to be overcome. There are gaps to be filled and challenges uh, for, for, for you to fulfill them. There is a purpose for you being here. You're meant to answer something, solve something, provide something, lead something, discover something, compose something, write something, say something, translate something, interpret something, sing something, create something, teach something, preach something, bear something, overcome something. And in doing so, you improve the lives of others under the power of God and to the glory of God. That's it. It's the same kind of thing that Pastor Paul's doing is what Pastor Claude did. Prophets prophesy, preach up. Servants serve. Donors give, leaders lead, merciful folk, get your mercy on. Counselors counsel, singers sing, ushers ush. I'm sure that's right. Project managers manage, parents parents, students learn, children play, and then clean up. Go for it. 
Go for it. There's an entity in town that some of you are familiar with. The whole purpose here, uh, their whole purpose is to create opportunities for you to use your service. It's Love Out Loud. And I want to show you their Pathways video. You'll actually see a couple people on there that um, may or may not be right here in, in church today. So, anyway. In 2008, a bunch of churches came together for a Christmas party for the city to simply be the hands and feet of Jesus right here in the heart of the city and not care who got the credit. In 2009, we began to highlight the work of some of the different nonprofits serving throughout the year. And in 2010, we went to all the nonprofits of Forsyth County and invited them to give us their top three volunteer and donation needs. We didn't make any promises, but simply sorted through all those needs, assigned a cost per day, and invited people to go wherever God was leading them based on their passions and their hearts. And that's all that we've been doing in Love Out Loud ever since, matching people who want to serve with great work that's already being done right here in our community. Pathways is a process whereby we go about doing that, a simple, defined way that we help volunteers look at what they care about and support volunteers in their efforts to find meaningful service all across the side county. I tried to commit about once a month working in the nursery on Sunday mornings, but that was just really hard with my busy schedule. The pathway process for me was was very helpful in kind of narrowing down and identifying what other opportunities are in Winston-Salem to volunteer. The whole goal was to help me identify kind of what my gifts were, and then I was partnered with a navigator, and she kind of got to know me more. Through our conversation, we also talked about how I really enjoy sports and exercise and health and wellness. I'm a physician assistant here in Winston-Salem. I had been helping out with the Arbor Raw, which is a local Fun Run 5K 10K race. It kind of came out that the organizers of the race wanted to kind of step back. I was kind of encouraged to consider uh, taking on that role. And it's been a really good fit for me for the last six months. You just really see kind of what God is doing in this world. Our greatest desire is to see individuals plunge into the things that they're deeply passionate about. Love Out Loud often hears from community members like you that they can't find a place that does what they're passionate about fits into their schedule or they feel they can serve in a meaningful way in their season of life. Pathways is designed to take into account those things and help you find a place of deep meaningful service where your passions, interests, and gifts can all come together. I felt very disconnected. I got an email uh, from someone in the church who said, I think this would be a really neat opportunity for you to, you know, would you be interested in becoming a navigator? This is a new program we're going to start up. You know, would you be interested? I just decided I was going to start saying yes. I agreed to do the navigator thing. I came to the first meeting. The biggest benefit uh, out of this has been for me and just getting to know So we had these sort of preconceived notions about what we're good at and what our gifts are, things that are set sort of so second nature to us that we just sort of dismiss them again. And, and they really are gifts. I was really kind of impressed with about the organization. Love out loud just how many opportunities you have. How are you one thing? Don't ask yourself if the world Ask yourself what makes you come alive. And go do that. Because what the world needs is people who make you come alive. Love Out Loud recently launched an online platform based to help individuals engage with volunteer opportunities and events all over the community. Whether you want to dive deep into the pathways process or just find a place to serve this weekend, BASE allows you to upload the causes that you're passionate about and your interests and skills and find volunteer opportunities in those areas with the relational support of Love Out Loud. The Pathways process has helped me and others find their passion and purpose in the place. Frederick Buechner says, the place God calls you to is a place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. 
love out loud and sin is despot until you find that place, the place that God has called you to be. We feel like if we accomplish that, there are more than enough resources, financial, human, and material, to meet all the needs of our community right here among us. So they have This is our website. Our team is here. So I don't, I don't show you that because I'm trying to plug Love Out Loud. I love Love Out Loud. I serve with them. Um, but, and I'll be glad for you to go to the website and do all that and fill it all out and, and figure out if you don't have a meaningful place to do that. I show you that because um, I want you to be encouraged that you have been gifted by the king of the universe <laughs> in natural and supernatural ways. And you've been given these gifts for the sake of his glory and your neighbor. I wonder how you might be feeling right now because sometimes when I read passages like this, um, I get a little hollowed out inside. And when I hear stories, and again, I'm on the board of Love Out Loud. I love this. I'm not talking about using your gifts. That is a living and beautiful reality. But sometimes these passages, uh, I, I feel like can, can, can be, maybe it's just the baggage I come to with it, is that it feels like a little bit self-helpy or motivational or, 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 or is, which is, I don't, I don't know. And self-help stuff, there's a lot of great stuff there. So I have a lot of respect for people who are like life coaches and things like that. But I sometimes approach these passages and I'm like, well, what, is there any more to this? Is there anything more? I don't want to just have building blocks for a better me, you know, greater self-actualization. Is there something more? And, and, and frankly, I need something more compelling as a mission than even my better self, which is a, a high and honorable calling that the Lord calls us to. But there's something more. There's got to be some greater narrative, greater story that's involved in these things. And that's where verse 4 and 5 come in for me. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, especially verse 5, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and listen to this, and individually members one of another. Not only are we a body, but we individually are members one of another. I don't even know how to draw that or think that. I don't know exactly how that works. It seems a little weird, a little M.C. Eschery or something like that, you know? Um, and to me, this is the real genius and hope of this passage is verse 5. And, and it's, it's really simple that we are one body and that we are one body in Christ. And, and that we are one body just, I don't know if I can repeat this enough or we can hear this enough. Because everything culturally in us with this hyper individualism is just so antithetical to the, what's, what's being invited to us, for, the, the compelling story for us here. Paul says that, the, that you as a church, this letter that's going circularly all around uh, um, uh, the known world of the time, we're one body and individually members of one another. Do we understand that? I don't even know if we can understand that. I, but can we even experience that in any way? That every single person in this city... Every single person in this city that calls upon the name of Jesus Christ is one you belong to, and they belong to you. That's mind-blowing. And I, I want to create the space where it's actually heart-blowing, too. 
where we see churches and wink and nod and go, that's my brother, that's my sister. That's why we think about each other immediately. You belong to them. The church leadership, I believe, the church leadership, which means in me, in, in, in my lifetime, have treated Christ and Christianity like a commodity, and the church is like something we need to get a market share of. And it's folly. We, we have too busy distinguishing ourselves and our products to actually experience belonging to one another. And it's really harmful for our witness. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. There are significant differences, but I don't need to tell you that because you are already thinking of them and how difficult this would be. Because we've all been trained to first talk about our differences and not our belonging to one another. And friends, we need each other in this cultural moment. We need each other, the church needs each other so badly. Let us not make this passage first about our gifts assessment, but as, as, as us and our belonging to one another as God's church, I believe that we are right now in one of the greatest evangelistic opportunities of, of my lifetime. And I believe that fundamental to that is us actually living out our unity across the foolish boundaries that we have and even the hard boundaries that we have and the good boundaries that we might have. And I believe that that itself is a demonstration, signs and wonders of the power of God working in a world that is only getting more and more fragmented. And that we, because of the power of the God that lives in us, the deep humility that was required to actually celebrate the giftedness of the other our, and work across our real differences, that that is a witness, that that is a testimony to the power of a resurrected God who brings a new humanity to himself. Eugene Peterson, there can be no maturity in the spiritual life, no obedience in following Jesus, no wholeness in the Christian life apart from the immersion in and embrace of a community. I am not myself by myself. Spurgeon, the free old beech yields to the blast and lies prone on the meadow. Beech is a tree. In the forest, they support each other. The trees laugh at the hurricane. The sheep of Jesus flock together. The, the social element of the, is the genius of Christianity, according to Spurgeon. Let the church in Winston-Salem and Miller Street learn to laugh together at the hurricanes of American politics. Not in arrogance, not in denying difference, but really having worked through those things with sobriety and celebration. Let the church in Winston-Salem and the church on Miller Street learn to laugh together at the hurricanes of denominational self-righteousness. Even from within our own denominations, let us learn to do that together. Let the church in Winston-Salem and the church here on Miller Street laugh together at the hurricanes of the structures of class and race and gender and education and the talk about that and the angst about that are ripping our communities apart. Not because we agree on everything, because we agree that we belong together. This, my friends, would be an incredible witness, a testimony, a declaration of the church and the power and the glory of God. And really, that's the most compelling reality. It's not that we belong to another as a body, but that we belong together as the body of Christ. We need not just one another, but we need to be hidden together in Christ Jesus. The point of belonging together or to one another is to show forth that we actually belong 
to this Jesus. Remember what Romans is about. All this stuff that we're talking about this, is about this good news about this one Jesus of Nazareth who is the fulfillment, the Messiah, and that he came first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles, to the whole world. And in particular, that he had power to create and unite and keep a people for himself. And he achieves this through his incarnation, his death, and his resurrection. This long-awaited Savior of the Jews is the Savior of the world. And now he is Savior and Lord. And though we were cursed under sin and death, deserving the very judgment of God and the fragmentation of our neighborly relationships, God, though, in his kindness and his love and peace and mercy, sends his son to reign with grace and truth and life by taking on sin and death in his body, it says. In taking that, he destroys that what is destructive to us. And anyone who would come to him, anyone who would come to him, will now live by the unmerited favor of his love. Period. Anyone. And so our belonging together is just a proof of us belonging to him and him doing what he said he was going to do. And we live in fact and light of who he is in his life. In fact, the scripture in Romans says that we've died with him and now are risen with him. We together. And us, y'all. All y'all. That's the actual motivating reality for sober-mindedness and celebration of gifts. Friends, this is not about efficiency or productivity. It's not about like achievement in your gift mix. It's not even really about using your gifts per se. It's not even about the unity that will bring, in my mind, an incredible witness in evangelism to the world. It's about our Lord Jesus. It's about celebrating who he is and what he's done and living in him and what he's doing in the world. The motivating reality of the passages is the very beginning and ending of our lives themselves. Christ Jesus. It's a horrible thing to get sober-minded and realize that you have way overvalued what you bring to the table. Unless Jesus is there, who can keep his arm close to you, who says he won't leave you or forsake you, who helps heal the things that you broke, who helps take your arrogance, tamp it down, who helps reconciliation happen when you haven't listened to the faithful wounds of a friend. None of it's worth it unless Jesus is there. And yet, it's always and always worth it to just go after it even if you don't get it right now. If you don't get it perfectly because we live under the reign of grace. And because being rightly sober-minded and celebratory of our gifts, just use them. Just go for them. You're not responsible for the results of it. You can't, you don't have the power in the first place. As I was reading through all this and I was trying to think of great leaders that have demonstrated this kind of thought, I was, think, I was reading all sorts of articles, but it reminded me again of Oscar Romero, the bishop in San Salvador in the 80s. Do you know Romero? Okay. He lived in a crazy time. There was literally the hard left and the hard right were killing each other, destroying each other. 
factions that were, that were destroying the country. And he was a bishop in, in San Salvador. Literally, violence was breaking out every, everywhere. And he just kind of did what he did. He preached. He led worship. Lead church services, visit the sick or the wounded. He'd hit the streets to protest against the violence. He'd meet with folks who were being ravaged by war. The tumult of his day was crazy. And he spoke out against the corruption of his country. On March 24th in 1980, he was leading a worship service in a chapel of a hospital where he was visiting people. And no one is exactly sure, still to this day, who gave the order. But a hitman came in and assassinated His normal stuff, his normal days, led to that and led to this incredible posture toward the world. Well, because, in the name of, because he did it in the name of Jesus, the normal things he did all day were this revolutionary force of love that only could be dealt with if it was snuffed out. And yet, it was not snuffed out. I tell you all that story because I just wanted to read you some of his encouragement to the people he worked with regularly, to Christians themselves. And it feels a little bit like a good way to end. Maybe he was even, um, well, I know he was doing, uh, working through Romans 12 homiletically in his, in his, in his, in his preaching um, a good bit. But, so maybe this is even a commentary on this, these verses. But I'll end with this. This is his own writing. It helps now and then to step back and take the long view. The kingdom is not only beyond our efforts, it's beyond our vision. We accomplish in our lifetime only a tiny fraction of the magnificent enterprise that is God's work. Nothing we do is complete, which is another way of saying that the kingdom always lies beyond us. No statement says all that we should say. No prayer fully expresses our faith. No confession really brings our contrition. No pastoral visit brings wholeness. No program accomplishes the church's mission. No set of goals and objectives includes everything. So it's really encouraging, right? <laughs> but this is what we're about. We plant the seeds that will one day grow. We water seeds already planted, knowing that they hold a future promise. We lay foundations that will need further development we provide yeast that produces effects far beyond our capabilities. We cannot do everything, and there's a sense of liberation realizing that. This enables us to do something and do it well. It may be incomplete, but it is a beginning. It is a step along the way, an opportunity for the Lord's grace to enter and do the rest, his mission. We, never, we may never see the end results, but that is the difference between the master builder and the worker. We are workers, not master builders. Ministers, not messiahs. We are prophets for a future that is not our own. But it is owned by the lover of our souls and the redeemer of all that we will ever be or do. Our Lord, our Savior. Jesus the Christ. Let's pray.